If it were early 2016 and you were looking to join South Bend City Church's gatherings, uh, you couldn't come to Studebaker or The Brick or really find any kind of public expression of South Bend City Church because we were just getting started, which meant that we were meeting in homes and sharing meals and dreaming together and listening to each other and praying and thinking about what South Bend City Church might become. And in those meetings, uh, there's a lot of questions like, what's this going to be like, right? And if you'd been there, you would have heard me uh, use a couple of triangles uh, to begin to describe the nature of South Bend City Church. And this isn't just arbitrary. This came to us through a reflection on the way that the New Testament depicts the church. But we would have pointed out that, first of all, it's really clear that to be Christian or to be church or whatever is to inherit or receive this story, this faith that comes to us from 2,000 years of history, that we don't kind of make this up as we go, but we sort of humble ourselves before this perspective or this story, and we let it drive us and, and govern us, right? So we, we would have like, talked really at length about the nature of that rooted faith, like where it comes from and what it contains and what it means for us. But then we would have observed that in the course of 2,000 years, there's a lot of change that happens in the world at large. And so there are different questions being asked today in some ways, than questions that were being asked 2,000 years ago, and there's new information available in the world than the information that was available 2,000 years ago. And so I would have put that second triangle up there, which is a Greek delta, which in math equations is a sign for change in a variable. And I would have set these two side by side, that Trinitarian triangle representing rooted faith on the left, and that Greek delta representing change on the right. And we would have just asked, what's the relationship of the church to both of these things? Like, where do we find ourselves in the midst of all of that? I would have argued one thing that churches can do is say the rooted faith stuff, that's our business. Just, just double down on that. Stay focused on that. And any new information, new questions, new conversations, new issues, that's just a distraction. So let's not turn our attention toward those things. And I would argue, like, you've been to that church. And what I mean by that church is you go to church, and you walk in, and you hear the sermon, and you're asking yourself, has the preacher been in a closet all week? Like, do they just wheel him out on Sunday? Because there's all this stuff that we're wrestling with out there in the world. There's these questions that we're asking, these tensions that we are feeling. And then we get here on Sunday, and we don't even hear about that stuff. We just kind of double down on the story that we've been hearing for a really long time. And that's one of the ways that church can try to be church in the year 2020, right? Uh, I argue that you could go further in that same sort of direction and like really double down on the rooted faith stuff, but you could see the changes around us, the new data, the new questions, the new ideas. You could see it as more than a distraction. You could actually see it as a threat. And that's when churches get kind of fundamentalist in their posture, right? And that's when people like me stand on stages like this and tell people like you, don't read those books. Don't ask those questions. It's, it's dangerous out there. And we're going to sort of build a hedge around this community so that we don't have to wrestle with all of that, right? I would have argued there's another, a third sort of way of interacting with all of this, which is really to say that this rooted faith stuff, this thing that we've inherited, ah, uh, it's kind of antiquated. It's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of old-fashioned. You know, so let's just kind of like sort of sweep that under the rug and kind of get updated, right? Like hang with the current moment. But of course, that, if you're not careful, becomes um, the assumption that whatever the current thinking is on anything, it's definitely the best thinking. And I'm not sure that's always a safe assumption. And I'm definitely um, convinced that that's not really what church has meant in its fullest life in the last 2,000 years. And so in those meetings, then I would have made the case from the book of Acts, from that story of the early church, that, that real church, that like living, breathing church, when we are at our best, we actually live in the tension between these two things. We, we, we are fully committed to this story that we have inherited, 
And we are wide awake, eyes open, and bravely going to wrestle with questions and issues that come about from the world that we are living in right now, right? So that's been our attempt from the beginning. And we try to say from the beginning, sometimes that'll be complicated. <laughs> sometimes that'll be tense. Sometimes that'll be messy. So like, just so you know, it's what you're signing up for. Let's go for it, right? And then we tried to make good on that. Like a few pointed examples that stand out to me. Um, we've talked as a community about science and faith. And we've wrestled with the feeling that really like the consensus of scientific disciplines on any number of questions looks different than like what we feel like we've received or inherited from Christian faith traditionally. And we've wrestled with the possibility that science and faith aren't actually enemies, but actually really good companions. But there's lots of questions involved in that premise, right? We've talked about sexuality and um, tried to recognize that like, we're not here to just make that up as we go, but we've recognized that stories and experiences, especially of LGBTQ people, like it's not appropriate to turn a deaf ear to those stories. And that's shaped the way that our church behaves in welcoming and including uh, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters all the way up the chain to leadership, belonging, and marriage. Uh, that's not an easy conversation, but we felt like we had to have it, right? It happened for us uh, the weekend um, when white nationalists were marching in Charlottesville. And rather than come to church on Sunday and pretend that that kind of hate wasn't parading in our streets, it was important for us to name it and lament it and pray about it. So we've been here before, and uh, today gives us another opportunity to try to live up to this commitment that as a church, we will wrestle with the tensions of ancient and rooted faith in a changing world. And the opportunity that we have today has come about sort of unexpectedly. Now, some of you are aware of a couple of things that have been going on in the interwebs, and some of you are not, uh, but enough of you seem aware of it that we thought we should talk about it. So a few things have happened in the last couple of weeks to give us the opportunity uh, to live up to the kind of conversation that we want to have. One of the things that you may be aware of is that our very own Dan Dietrich wrote a song and released it. And uh, the song that Dan wrote and released um, is a pretty fierce lament, um, naming what, and I don't want to put Dan's in words mouth, but um, naming his perceived sort of incompatibility between the way of Jesus that so many of us were raised to follow and trust and the way that it feels like many of the very people who taught us to follow Jesus feels like they're now affirming a political leader who doesn't look much like Jesus. And the song got after that pretty intensely. The song uh, went out there on the internet, and then it went sort of viral. And so like earlier this week, it was getting 100,000 plays a day on YouTube. And then Huffington Post covered it, and Religion News Service covered it. And then FoxNews.com had it on the front page of FoxNews.com. And then The Hill, which is uh, political reporting, did a story on it. And we could go on and on. But it's sort of made the rounds, and some of you have seen it making the rounds, right? Now, the, the thing about um, that song is, though it's not like a South Bend City Church song, it's like, a, like Dan, he's an artist, and he wrote a song, and he released it. Um, but we are also sort of like being tagged with that song, and so as a church, we've been hearing from a lot of people. <laughs> and we've heard a few things. One of the things we have heard loudly is just how many people have been moved um, to hear their own lament expressed um, by an artist in the church, have been moved to discover that um, they're not crazy or alone as they wrestle with what they see in our politics right now. We've heard from many who've been just really powerfully um, served by that song. We've also heard from people who have um, really um, been unhappy about the song and perhaps have felt accused or misunderstood. And that message has come through loud and clear. 
And then lastly, we've heard specifically from members of South and City Church who, regardless of their feelings about the song, have just described how hard it is to be put in the position to try to explain it. Uh, because like you're affiliated with South and City Church and one of our pastors created this thing and put it out there in the world. So now maybe you didn't even know about the song, but you were kind of put on the spot and asked uh, to answer questions about it or something like that. And I know that can be a really difficult place to be. Um, so Dan put this song out there. And that's not the only thing that happened in the last two weeks. Uh, another thing that happened is on Tuesday, the New York Times released an article, the first sentence of which was this. In early December, more than 100 members of Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign staff gathered at the South Bend City Church, <laughs> a mile from headquarters, for a mandatory half-day retreat about diversity and inclusion. I'm glad we're laughing at all this. So all that's been out there, and I know not, not all of you have been aware of that, but enough of you have been aware of it that we thought we should talk about this stuff. And so instead of preaching the last week of our, of our series on spiritual revolution, I'm gonna, I'm gonna punt that to two weeks from now. So don't worry, two weeks from now, all of your lingering questions about spiritual growth are gonna be answered. <laughs> but this week we're kind of pausing that series because uh, we think we should talk about this stuff, right? It's really what we're here for as a church. Um, now I realize... Um, Oh, well, sorry, I think there's a couple of questions in particular that we should address. One that's probably coming up in the wake of all this is, what kind of community is South Bend City Church? Like, in, in what ways are these things on the internet indicators or not indicators of what kind of community is South Bend City Church? Another thing alongside that you might be asking is, what, if anything, does politics have to do with it? I think we should talk about these two questions. I realize um, some of you, your heart is already beating a little faster. There's maybe some anxiety or stress. You did not know that you were coming into church today to hear a sermon about faith and politics. Maybe it's a little bit like how you feel when Thanksgiving dinner is around the corner and you're going to share a meal with people and you got uncle so-and-so who's on the other side of whatever political spectrum you're on and you just, it feels uncomfortable. So before I get into it, don't worry. I got a picture of a puppy. <laughs> I got another one. What about this guy? Oh, look. He's like, he's like, don't worry, guys. It's going to be okay. Look how happy this next one is. Look how happy. All right, I feel a little better. My blood pressure is a little lower than it has been most of this week. What kind of community is South and City Church, and what, if anything, does politics have to do with it? Well, first of all, the baseline is that South and City Church is a Jesus community. That's the baseline. So to answer these questions a little more thoroughly, we're going to um, look at a moment in the life of Jesus that doesn't answer all the questions, but I think can point us in a certain direction. And so we're going to do a little work with the text from Matthew chapter 22. Let's get into it. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? This is a loaded moment for Jesus in his interaction with these people. Let's work this out together a little bit. There's a few things going on. We have Pharisees, we have Herodians, and we have the imperial tax. Well, the Pharisees um, and the Herodians are both in some ways answers to big questions that the Israelites are asking, the Hebrew people are asking in the first century. You have uh, the Israelites who had been exiled, who are now brought back to their homeland, but it still doesn't really feel like their home because their homeland is occupied by the Roman Empire. 
So imagine somebody kicks you out of your house, like kicks you out of your house, and then later says, oh, don't worry, you can have your house back, except somebody else is living in the master bedroom and calling the shots. You may be home, but it may not feel like home, right? Well, add to that the fact that for the Israelites to be home in the land isn't just practical or comfortable, it's theological, because this is God's land. And God has called them to live in the land in a way that honors God. And this Roman occupation is an affront to all of this, because the Romans have the audacity to say the land belongs to the Romans, and that they're like lending it out to the Israelites, when the Israelites have been told from the very beginning, no, the land is God's. And your role in the land is to live the way that God wants you to live in the land. And the Romans seem to be at odds with all that. So we have the Pharisees, for example. And the Pharisees is a name for a group of people who have a worldview within all of this. You might even call it a politic within all of this. You might even call them a party. And they have an idea that, um, that a very strict allegiance to the law of God, as they interpret it, is the right response to this political moment that they are living in. And their hope, it seems, is that, the, that if they live with the right kind of allegiance to the law, that God will respond to that obedience and will kick the Romans out. There seems to be that sort of logic at work among the Pharisees. This is important because often the Pharisees in popular preaching or whatever, they're kind of just described as like the foil to Jesus. They're like the adversaries to Jesus and they're like the legalists and Jesus is like the free love guy or whatever, you know. But there's more going on there, and it's really quite clear that for the Pharisees, they have a way of sort of being as a body within Israel, people who have a view of theology and politics and power and the right way of being faithful in the middle of all that. Then we have the Herodians. The Herodians are called the Herodians because they're really affiliated with or loyal to Herod. And Herod is the name for the puppet king who has been installed by the Romans to govern this little part of Rome that we call Israel. So Herod himself is Jewish, and Herod himself is enriched and empowered by this political arrangement, where it seems that much of his job is just to make sure that this little part of the empire doesn't cause problems for the larger Roman project, right? So the Pharisees and the Herodians, it seems, are really uh, at odds in some ways. The Pharisees, it seems, um, are, they, they have sort of a, a counter-cultural reaction to all this. We're going to be really strict about the ways that we try to be faithful and resistance to all of this. The Herodians seem to have a sort of uh, go-along-to-get-along sort of view, right? Like, hey, you know what? Status quo, it's working for us, so let's just kind of hang with it. And so you have them coming to Jesus, and they're asking him about the imperial tax. Now, this is a specific tax that was enacted in 86. So this is a few years before Jesus is an adult. And uh, this tax is really troubling for a lot of the Israelite people. I mean, first of all, it's just a sort of salt-in-the-wound reminder that they don't enjoy independence or autonomy as a people because the Romans are exercising their ability to extract taxes from the Israelite. But it gets worse than that because this tax is construed as something like paying rent on the land. But remember, for the Israelites, it's not Rome's land. It's God's land. So if, if you have this deeply held theological belief that this is God's land, and then these unbelievers with their military power come in and take over the land and then demand that you pay them rent, it's possible that that rent paying is seen as you being complicit in this thing that God doesn't want. Make sense? This is loaded. This is fraught. And the people asking Jesus this question, it seems that they want him to give an answer that's going to line him up with one of the parties, that's going to line him up with one of the camps that have drawn lines in this political, theological moment. It also seems that they want to trap him because they, uh, they know that if he says, pay the tax, 
he'll probably lose a lot of his followers. It seems that a lot of the sort of everyday people who are following Jesus, they feel the burden of this Roman occupation, and they're really hopeful that there's a different future waiting for them. And they're hopeful that maybe Jesus is part of that different future. So if he says, pay the tax, he runs the risk of sort of offending a lot of his followers. But if he says, don't pay the tax, then they can portray him as a dissident to the Romans and probably use that against him to sort of silence him or end his movement. So this is a tricky, sticky situation for Jesus. And the more I meditate on all the dynamics in play, uh, the more grateful I am for these stories with Jesus because I I find there's more in common (laughs) with what he actually bumps into and what we bump into every day than is sometimes first apparent when you read these old, old stories from a different time and place. Jesus is, is stuck in this awkward political, theological moment, and he's about to make a move. Watch what happens next. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So there's a coin here, by the way, and not unlike modern American coins, there's a, there's a figure on the coin, right? And in this case, it's Caesar. And then he said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, this passage is often brought up when people want to think about faith and politics. I want to argue that a couple of the moves that people often make, I don't think they actually work very well. One of the moves is people say, oh, he, he just, he affirmed the tax. I'm going to show you in a minute where I don't think that's quite right. Um, but yeah, they, he just affirmed pay the, pay the tax. Uh, other people have argued that this sort of um, builds out uh, an even sort of deeper commitment that whatever government does, you've got to get behind it. Uh, people sometimes quote a passage from the book of Romans that seems to say something similar. Problem is there is, is they'll seem to ignore the entire book of Revelation and much of the Hebrew prophets, which seem to have different things to say about resisting power when it's unjust or corrupt. So that seems to be a little bit problematic. But to me, the biggest problem with some of these interpretations is if Jesus just picked a side and said, uh, pay the tax, right? Or if Jesus is sort of creating these neat and tidy categories of like two kingdoms and we're citizens of both and you just have to live with this sort of like duality, within you, you're a citizen of God's kingdom and you're a citizen of whatever empire you're a part of. If he's offering those kinds of things, to me it makes no sense of their reaction because what did it say the people felt when they heard what he said? Amazed, right? Amazed tells me that we need to be looking for something surprising, something subversive, that, that he did something unexpected and powerful with his answer. And with that sort of mandate to look for that, I think it begins to emerge. Uh, So I have a couple of takeaways that I think stand out in this passage, and they're not the ones that I often hear preached. Um, But let me me start with the first one and see if I can work this out from the passage. The first thing I see here is that Jesus isn't partisan. I think this is a moment when they are trying to trap Jesus into aligning with a partisan identity in that moment. And for for reasons within this passage and for reasons coming from other passages, I think it's really clear that Jesus isn't partisan. So like, work this out with me, right? They come to him, um, both sort of representing camps or tribes or or parties in this whole equation of theology and politics and power. They're trying to get him to give them an answer that aligns him with one of these camps or tribes or parties, right? And the first thing he does, (laughs) I kind of picture him being like, Oh, yeah, you got one of those coins? 
You got one of those coins? Yeah, anybody? And somebody pulls out a coin, at which point they have just shown the whole world that they're an idolater. Because in good Jewish thinking in the first century, any graven image is absolutely prohibited. You don't bow down to graven images. You don't have them in your home. You don't carry them around. You don't give any credence to any kind of engraved image of any living thing or any sort of idolatrous god. And this is like deep in the bones and the psyche of the Jewish people in the first century. Idolatry is about as bad as it can get if you were looking for violations of the law of God. And so they come to him asking him to align himself with one of their parties, with one of their interests, and he gets them to, to reveal, to show, to expose their idolatry in front of everyone, which suggests to me that partisan games often carry within them a sort of inherent idolatry and any of us who find ourselves like super deeply aligned with a partisan identity in our modern politics, we might need to ask ourselves if there's any idolatry lurking there, right? We might need to ask ourselves if we are maybe hoping that party politics will um, be a bit like a savior for us, you know? That the right political leader will be more than a good political leader with good policies, I'm all for rooting for good political leaders with good policies, and I think the world is better or worse based on who's in power and what kind of policies they have. But I think Jesus knows that there is a thing in the heart, in the soul, in the hopes of humanity that is meant to be directed beyond partisan politics, but that can land in partisan politics, and it's idolatrous. The next thing that I see here, at least my best reading, and by the way, I'm not coming up with this on my own. I did lots of homework in the three hours that I had the chance to write the sermon on Thursday between... <laughs> when I had the other one planned and then we started doing this. But, um, but, but really, um, my reading on this is that Jesus doesn't really answer them in the tax. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, as if to say, I'm gonna leave you to decide what belongs to Caesar. But if it belongs to Caesar, you should give it to him because anything that belongs to anyone, you should give it back, right? I actually see him sort of slipping his way out of this question and like refusing to play along with them sort of putting him in a corner there. So I don't see like a really satisfying answer to the question they ask. And again, I think it's because Jesus knows you're trying to drag me into your partisan games and I'm not gonna play those games. It's also apparent from other parts of Jesus' story that he's not partisan. Uh, Jesus has two friends that he invites to be part of his entourage, part of his family. One of them is named Matthew. They call him the tax collector. One of them is called Simon the Zealot. Now, the thing about Simon the Zealot is they're not just saying he's a generally enthusiastic person. Some of you have young children who are zealots, but that's in the informal sense, right? This is a zealot in a formal categorical sense, which means that Simon belongs to a tax revolt movement, which began back in 86, where the very tax that Jesus is being interrogated about in this conversation was begun. So back in 86, a guy named Judas of Galilee begins the zealot movement. And this is a faith-driven, passionate movement which believes that this tax is like the last straw of blasphemy against the God who said that this land is for us. And so we will do whatever we can to overthrow this movement. So you got Simon the zealot who belongs to a movement whose entire founding story comes from a resistance to the tax that Jesus is being asked about. But next him, you have Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, whose job is to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire, and who, if he's like most of the tax collectors of his day, probably has been enriching himself unjustly along the way and adding to the undue economic burden already put on people who don't have enough. And they're both in his inner circle. 
Like that ought to like stop us right there, that whatever Jesus is doing in building, it has the power and the capacity to transcend and subvert some of these partisan lines and identities. Because if it didn't, there's no way that Matthew and Simon make it more than a minute together in that family that Jesus was building. Something's going on here, uh, but I don't think Jesus is partisan. The more I've reflected on that, the more I've thought that um, perhaps one of the reasons that he can't be partisan is he knows that like partisan lines and political tribes, um, they're just not very good at holding the depth and the complexity of our human stories. I think one of the things that can happen, especially like in modern American politics with the right and the left, is that things get collapsed into sort of one-dimensional binaries, and these categories are not very good at holding the depth and the complexity of human stories. And I have to say that as a pastor in the last few years in particular, I have been learning how much I didn't know about the depth and the complexity and the surprises lurking in actual human stories. A few little examples. Uh, in 2016, we were getting started as a church, and that fall, we were meeting at the Brick on Wednesday nights. And then there was the week when the Access Hollywood tapes were released, and we heard Donald Trump uh, bragging about sexual assault and saying really, um, really awful things about uh, women. So we had that gathering that week, and the sermon wasn't about politics, and it wasn't about taking a side in the larger election question. It was simply a gathering about reading the book of Acts and being a church together. But um, as I have learned a little more from women about the pain and the prevalence of violence done against women, and how often it is just sort of ignored or laughed off or swept under the rug, I felt that it would be like pastoral negligence if I didn't mention it briefly in our gathering. I was hearing from women the kind of trauma that they were feeling from that. So I simply said, it's one sentence. I said, um, if you are a woman in particular, I want to say I'm really sorry that we have built a world where that kind of language about women's bodies is laughed off as locker room talk. That was it. I said that. And what surprised me was the women that were livid with me because they thought that it was a pro-Hillary stance that I was taking in our gatherings, and they were really upset. And I remember thinking, there's a lot I don't know. And human stories and identities are complex and surprising. And if we think that the world is accurately mapped with partisan lines, I bet we're wrong. Before uh, this most recent work of South Bend City Church, I think I ignorantly thought that I had a basic grasp of the experience of people of color. And I have learned again and again and again just how naive and ignorant I was. And so a few years ago, if perhaps I looked out at the partisan landscape and I imagined um, where a person should land politically if they're trying to be compassionate toward um, neighbors and friends of color, like I'm learning today that I did not understand and I still barely understand, but I'm. I'm learning that um, the picture I had and the assumptions I had made about whether our partisan landscape was adequate to address these experiences, I'm just learning I was really, really ignorant. I've learned um, surprising things from business owners in our church. This might seem like a weird turn. I was gonna say left turn, but probably a right turn. <laughs> We're okay. Um, yeah, you know, I think, um, my politics have shifted and evolved in my own perspective on things. Uh, and it's been really, really important and really enlightening for me to learn. We have a lot of business owners in this church who do really noble work, who work long, hard hours, and they do so because they know that work matters not just for them, but for the people they employ. 
and for the customers they serve, and it's really noble and beautiful. And uh, some of them have sort of taken me behind the scenes a little bit and helped me understand just how cumbersome and um, sort of frustrating it is, not that their businesses are regulated, but that they seem so arbitrarily regulated, or that policies written in Washington seem so um, blunt and unnuanced and unable to really um, do a lot of good, but cause a lot of trouble for people who are just trying to make good work for themselves and others. It's been the kind of thing that has taught me, again, that like these sort of black and white, left-right divides and the assumptions that we make about the right partisan politic, they don't have the space to include the complexity and the depth of human motivation and experience. I uh, spent most of my life with very, very little proximity to um, those with little economic resource. And then uh, now I have the privilege of being a pastor in a city where, where most, um, sort of statistically speaking, like have far less than many people in other places. And I got to say, like, the assumptions that I might have made about people who live below poverty lines or people who have had seasons without a home have just all been blown up by the lived reality that these brothers and sisters have shared with me about their actual experience. And that has, that has just taught me about the depth and the complexity of these lived stories. And they're not very well represented in the sort of partisan black, white, left, right divide. And I suspect it's because Jesus is always seeing the depth and the complexity of the humanity that he surrounds himself with, that he's unwilling to let his own ministry and life get co-opted, dragged into the left, right, partisan fight. So, um, if Jesus isn't partisan, I don't think he's a Republican. I don't think he's a Democrat. I don't think the Republicans or the Democrats have a patent on God. I don't think anybody, because of those party affiliations, gets to just sort of speak with the voice of God in the world today. I think that's really important. And if Jesus isn't partisan, then neither can South and City Church be partisan. And that's really important too. Uh, so like what that means, for example, is South and City Church is never gonna tell you who to vote for, okay? Let me be really clear about that. People who are a part of South Bend City Church might have opinions about who the person is that is best voted for. I'm not taking responsibility for people who are a part of South Bend City Church having their own voice and perspective. I'm telling you, South Bend City Church and our functions as a community from this stage, the way that we sort of formally speak online, South Bend City Church will never tell you who to vote for. But I'll get to this further in a moment. Like, please don't be surprised if people have strong feelings about who to vote for and they express that in their own spaces in ways. Um, I'm not making a disclaimer about that. I'm just making a promise to you about the nature of what we do as a family. One other note about that, just to clarify. So the New York Times had that, that piece about Mayor Pete's campaign meeting um, here at South and City Church. Uh, it's true. <laughs> um, we were approached by the campaign and we were asked by them the same thing that many nonprofit groups in South Bend ask us, which is, could we use your space for a meeting or something like that? And we really wrestled with it as a community, as a church, as a leadership. We wondered, um, you know, we say yes to a lot of different organizations in our area because we want this space to serve the community in all sorts of ways. And we asked ourselves, in what ways is this different and in what ways is it the same? But we ultimately landed on, hey, it's, it's a private retreat. It's not like it's a rally. It's not like a public gathering of supporters. It's a private retreat for their staff, and they're paying the same rental fee that any other group would pay. And so we allowed them to use it. Um, and at the time, that seemed like the right decision, but I think um, in light of the coverage, I think um, uh, it may not be anymore. So 
we have really uh, officially sort of changed our rental policy, and going forward, we won't be renting to any explicitly political groups, because I just think, while we want to create space for a lot of different community organizations, um, we should never do so if it obscures our core mission and message. And I think there's the possibility that for some that has been a little bit obscured in the wake of all of this. So a couple of notes there. Uh, Jesus isn't partisan, neither is South and City Church. But I do think Jesus is political. Um, and this is the part that we'll talk much more about this fall. When we get to October, we're going to try to dig into this together. But let me stay with the passage at hand and see if I can work this out a little bit. So Jesus has these people who come to him, and they're trying to get him to land with one of their camps, one of their tribes, one of their parties. They're trying to get him to align himself somehow. And I think he deftly slips out of that trap, but he does something else instead. So remember, he asked them to produce the coin, and then he says, whose image is on it? You might, the question might have been, whose image does the coin bear? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, well, I don't know, you should, you should probably give to Caesar whatever belongs to Caesar. And at that moment, I picture everyone being like, all right, that's his answer. And just as they start to walk away, Jesus is like, but you should give to God whatever belongs to God. And we're having a conversation about the image which is born. And any good Jew in that moment in this dialogue knows that the first thing that their scriptures tell them about being human is that we are bearers of the image of God. And so Jesus is there where they're trying to trap him in what I interpret as a sort of partisan moment. And he refuses to be brought into that partisan divide, that sort of break. But then he, he, he turns and he has a conversation with them about reminding them that you are a bearer of the image of God. And the larger question you better ask yourself is what does it mean for you to live up to that? For you to give your life for that, for you to reflect that in the decisions that you make and the way that you live. Now, we've talked about this before, but to bear the image of God and to honor the image of God in our neighbor, that's big and important stuff, right? To bear the image of God is to be given some sort of power and dignity. The dignity says that I don't care what anybody has ever said about you or believed about you. We believe your life has an unassailable dignity to it, but it also means there's a responsibility baked into every human life because we have some power in the world. God has power, we have some power in the world. That's part of bearing the image. And bearing the image well means using our power in the ways that God uses God's power. So God uses God's power to get God's hands on the raw materials and to cultivate greater and greater flourishing and more and more diverse life. This is Genesis one through and through. So then after God has gotten God's hands on the raw materials and used God's power to create greater and greater flourishing and more and more diverse life, and then he says, hey human beings, you bear my image, you bear some responsibility to use whatever power you have for the same kinds of things. I don't know how we can talk about bearing the image of God without talking about politics, because when I say politics, I mean the ways that we use our power and the kind of world that we are creating. I think that's a fair definition of politics in the broad stroke, the ways that we use our power and the kind of world that we are creating together. This includes your voice your dollars, your influence, your relationships, and even your vote. Jesus is in a moment where they try to trap him in a sort of partisan divide, and he slips out of that, but he doesn't let any of us off the hook because I think Jesus is political because he comes into this world knowing that we all have some power to use and we all have some responsibility for the world that we are shaping, and we all have neighbors, brothers and sisters. We all look around at a world full of bearers of the divine image, 
And we are building a world that either does or doesn't honor that image in other people. We are using our power in ways that either make sure that more people will flourish and be lifted up or won't. And I think Jesus is unapologetically and almost troublingly political sometimes. And by the way, like they didn't kill him because he was a nice guy, right? I think he lost his life because he radically disrupted the status quo. And the people who were radically invested in that status quo just couldn't take it. And so they decided to end him. I don't know how you read the Gospels without discovering that Jesus is powerfully political in all sorts of ways. Now, the problem is I don't have any more time to talk about that today, <laughs> which is why we got to get together in October and have some brave and thoughtful conversations. You know, one, one really good thing is back to that rooted faith stuff. We in the year 2020 are the inheritors of uh, 2,000 years of rich thinking from faithful people about what it means to live up to the kingdom of God in the middle of the world that we are in right now. Like really great thinking about what it means to be political the way that Jesus was political. And so we're gonna avail ourselves of those resources and we're gonna try to learn together about how we use our power in the world, whether it's your voice or your vote or anything else. I'm not gonna tell you how to vote for in that series, but we are gonna pose some questions. We're gonna wrestle with some stuff and I think we're all gonna be uh, way better off for it. Um, what I have loved about South and City Church from the beginning is the kind of uncommon, and you might even say impossible community that is being forged in our midst. Um, we have seen in all sorts of ways that by God's grace, this community defies some of the categories that shape the world in so many ways. And at first I thought that's uncommon, but the more I read the Bible, I think we better expect it because it's often the way the Bible talks about the church. Paul writes um, something similar in more than one place, but he says it in Colossians like this. The new self is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. There's that thing again, right? The image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now make no mistake, friends, Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, those are religious categories, those are political categories, those are economic categories, and God is doing something to disrupt the way that those categories shape and define us and our neighbors in this world. He's doing something to shake all of that up, and I've had the privilege of seeing some of that right here at South Bend City Church. I think if Paul were writing a letter to us today, and it wasn't called Colossians, it was called South Bendians, <laughs> it would say, here, there is no Democrat or Republican. Here, there is no Fox News or CNN. But Christ is all and is in all. And it doesn't mean that we get to just step out of the fray. It doesn't mean that we just create false equivocations and say that any perspective and any political allegiance and any vote is equally valid in faithfulness to Jesus. I don't mean that. But I mean our identity and our belonging run deeper than the labels that are shaping our world right now. We, um, we uh, early in our gathering, sing a song that I was really grateful that Dan had planned for us today because it, I think, is like really good word for us. And so we're gonna sing a little bit of it again. The song asks God to be our vision and there's two ways of hearing that. One would be that we would see God, right? 
And the other would be that sort of through God's vision, we would see everything, right? Um, I think it's, it's very tragically the case that for many of us, our vision um, is the way that CNN or Fox News are teaching us to see the world. And I just think like there has to be a deeper, better, more prophetic and gracious way of living in the world. And I think part of that will be learning to see the way that God is teaching us to see. Learning to see the way that Jesus saw when he walked through the world. Uh, it led him to do brave, risky, disruptive, beautiful, compassionate things. And I look around this church and I see a whole bunch of people who do that kind of stuff too and who want to grow into more of that kind of brave and beautiful living. And so um, maybe as we sing the song at the conclusion of our gathering here, maybe you'll ask God, is there anything about the way I see this politic, this moment that isn't quite right? Is there anything that needs adjusted? Is there any way that I see my neighbor or my enemy or the other? Is there any way that I see the people who vote differently from me in a way that needs adjusted right now? Um, I think it'd be a good prayer for us to pray before we go. So Dan will lead us. I had a humdinger of a sermon planned on spiritual growth, and then Dan went and wrote that damn song. And I swore on Thursday, and I wasn't planning on it, and I wasn't going to cuss today, but I don't ever want Sunday to miss out on the experience that we give our church on Thursday nights. So if you needed to hear your pastor cuss, you're welcome. <laughs> May we have the vision that God is calling us to. May we see every neighbor as the beloved bearer of the divine image that they are. May we be brave enough to use our power in ways that honor God and honor one another. And may every word we speak and every vote we cast be done with the kind of trembling fear that is worthy of the power that we've been given. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you soon.